2: I have you loud
3: and clear.
0: Hello. (laughs) Hello. 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 Welcome. (laughs) Science.
3: And that is to say. Physics. Medicine. Nature. Space.
0: Space. Time.
4: Brain. Life. The Universe. This week, the conflicts and controversies
5: of conservation. Can we share the planet with a species we want to save? Plus, in the news, the life-saving properties of vitamin K, 100 years since Cambridge's most unlikely mathematician, and an update on the phone security debate. I'm Kat Arney. I'm
4: Connie Orbach, and this is The Naked Scientists.
6: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. <laughs>
5: You've probably heard of vitamins A, B, C and D, but what about vitamin K? Well, it's found in green leafy veg, vegetable oils and grains, and it's normally involved in blood clotting and bone health. But that's not all. Researchers at the British Heart Foundation have just launched a clinical trial to find out whether this vital vitamin could have a life-saving impact on patients with chronic kidney disease. I spoke to the charity's Associate Medical Director, Jeremy Pearson, to find out how.
7: Chronic kidney disease is quite common. Something like one in five of the population over the age of 70, amazingly, have some symptoms of chronic kidney disease. The major risk factors are high blood pressure and diabetes. And the major complication, as far as the British Heart Foundation is concerned, is that these patients have a high excess mortality of cardiovascular disease. So the kidney disease causes cardiovascular disease. The way in which it does it is by increasing calcification, stiffening of the arteries. The reason for using vitamin K in this study is the hope that this will reduce the stiffening of the arteries because what it does is interferes with one of the proteins that causes the stiffening.
5: What was the idea for the trial? Where did it all start?
7: Because there are no good cures for chronic kidney disease, in fact there are no cures at the moment, and most patients will gradually progress towards ultimately needing dialysis regularly or even a kidney transplant. It's therefore a disease with a high burden on the NHS and also a high burden on the patient with poor quality of life and ultimately high morbidity. So there's been quite a search for any kind of drug that might help alleviate or slow down the symptoms of the progression of the disease. The current status is okay we know what the risk factors are reduce the risk factors so try and lower your blood pressure that's the first thing and you will be given medication to lower your blood pressure secondly it's also clear that this is associated with the standard things that you would find for risk factors for heart disease so the patient will be told to lower their cholesterol levels either by diet or if not possible by diet by statin or something like that all that does though is slow the process down of the kidney damage And it doesn't seem to do very much to this stiffening of the arteries, which is why this particular study is interesting. The reason why vitamin K was proposed is actually based on animal studies. Animal studies have shown that if you can enhance vitamin K, you can slow down the rate of calcification in the arteries in animal models. So there's a good basis for thinking this might work. The other reason why it seems to be a good idea is because there are low vitamin K levels in patients who have chronic kidney disease, therefore boosting them should have a good effect.
5: Tell me a bit more about this trial. Is it a particularly large trial? Why is this special?
7: It's not huge. It's, I think, going to be very good value for money. It's going to cost less than £300,000. They're going to do 166 patients. They're going to randomise them into taking supplement of vitamin K or a placebo, so they don't know which arm they're in of the trial. And what they're going to do, very simply, is to measure aortic stiffness at the beginning of the trial, and then at the end of it, six months later.
5: That's how stiff this main artery in the heart is?
7: Exactly. The main, the main artery leading to the heart the aorta is what they're really measuring the stiffness in, which is the major affected artery, but actually other smaller arteries, including those in the heart, are affected, which is why it's dangerous. Stiffening of the arteries puts more work on the heart, hence the excess cardiovascular risk.
5: Can people not get this from their diet? Why do we need to supplement
7: you can get vitamin K in the diet, but in fact most people, particularly middle-aged or elderly people, don't get enough in their diet, and so supplementation would raise the levels to the levels at which would be recommended.
5: So we're not going to see people being given vitamin K supplements anytime soon, and you wouldn't recommend that people go out and start taking them?
7: I don't think we can recommend that at the moment. It's pretty clear that If for any reason in a GP consultation it turns out that you have low vitamin K levels, your doctor may well suggest vitamin K supplementation just to bring it back to normal levels on the grounds that that would be a good thing for your general health. But I don't think we've yet got to the stage where we're going to recommend this for treatment for chronic kidney disease patients, though hopefully the results of this trial will be the step in the right direction. That would be great because vitamin K supplementation is cheap and easy and acceptable to the public. In patients with chronic kidney disease, their death rate from coronary heart disease or a stroke is somewhere between two and eight times higher than in the general population with the same sort of risk factors, like high cholesterol or high blood pressure.
5: So I guess there's quite a good basis to try and bring that down.
7: Yes, that's why there's a real urgency to try and do something about this disease, which until now we haven't had any very successful treatments for.
5: The British Heart Foundation's Jeremy Pearson. More medicine now. When someone gets an
4: organ transplant, they need a cocktail of different drugs to prevent the organ being rejected and to keep them healthy in other ways. But providing the right amount of each drug can be something of a guessing game. Too few and the organ is rejected. Too many and you could have some nasty side effects. So when UCLA surgeon Dr Ali Zarinpa was approached by a father-son engineering duo who thought they had a new way to correctly keep the dosage within a safe range, they soon set out to test the method, termed phenotypic personalised medicine or PPM. The results suggest it could be a safer way to dose patients, which is important because when it comes to medicine, everyone is different.
3: Not only you and I are different, but I am different from me yesterday and me tomorrow. So my kidney function may be better today than it was yesterday, and it may be worse today than it will be tomorrow, or vice versa. And all of these will affect how I respond to a given dose of a drug.
1: How does this new approach you've come up with actually work
3: then? What we did was even simplify the problem further. We're not trying to go to the moon on the first try. What we're trying to do is solve a very small problem in transplant immunosuppression, and that's dosing of one immunosuppressive drug. And even that simple task is really difficult. So uh, we tried to, uh, you know, in a small clinical trial, optimize the dosing of this drug called tacrolimus And that itself is a clinical chore. So we have physicians who take uh, a patient, they look at their drug response in the last few days, they look at uh, where the sort of optimal blood level of this drug is going to be, and they will dose the next day's drug. And sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. And, And a lot of it depends on, one, the clinical experience of the person who's doing it, but also sort of how stable the patient is that they're dosing. So what we decided to do was to take that small piece of the problem and solve it this way. And so what we did was we took our patients, we looked at their inputs, which were dialysis, antiviral, antifungal, antibiotic, other immunosuppressants, use those as inputs and try to predict what the next day's tacrolimus dose should be based on what the response of the tacrolimus dose was on the previous few days.
1: You worked out the inputs. Then what did you have, an equation that put them together?
3: What we did was our clinical team took the data. Uh, we sent it over to the engineering team. They basically plotted the data. They looked at uh, the data on a curve. They, they made a number of curves with these drug responses. And based on our target uh, level the next day, they said, well, you know, this dose of tacrolimus would give you tomorrow's level at whatever level you want it to be at. And so the next day we gave them that dose and we looked at whether the patient was within that range or not. It's a, an approach to using the uh, patient's response to predict how they will respond in the future.
1: And so, did you find an improvement? in your method compared to the traditional way of doing this?
3: So we did a a small prospective trial. We had four patients who were getting standard of care, which is basically the physician's dosing. And we had four patients where we had the engineers uh, analyze the data and do the dosing. You know, it's a small study, so the, the statistics of it are not as impressive. But certainly the number of days that the patients on the engineer dosed arm did much better. So they had fewer days out of range. They had fewer days widely out of range. In every parameter that we measured, the engineering dosed patients did better.
1: Are there applications outside of organ donation? Could this new method be broadened across drug taking in general?
3: There are a number of different health problems out there that require multi-drug treatment. I think it's a very rare disease that you can take one drug for and it will cure the problem. Our engineering teams actually looked at a number of different uh, issues in this case. Although our trial was the first inhuman trial of this methodology, they have shown in the lab that uh, response in mice, in colon cancer, chemotherapy. So chemotherapy is a multi-drug treated disease. So chemotherapy regimens can be optimized Tuberculosis is in general a multi-drug treated disease, so tuberculosis combinations can be optimized. And There are a lot of other issues, other diseases that are treated now uh, with a single drug. Bacterial infections a lot of times. I think uh, sort of the infectious disease community likes to have a silver bullet antibiotic to treat an infection, but it may actually be better to treat a single infection with multiple drugs to minimise the risk of developing resistance. And so that's one avenue that we're trying this methodology on.
5: Ali Zaranpa, Assistant Professor of Surgery at UCLA. And the results from that study were published this week in Science Translational Medicine. And now it's time for our weekly myth conception. Kat, I understand you have a particularly tasty myth for us. I certainly do. Nom, 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 nom. If you cast your mind back to school biology lessons, you may remember seeing so-called taste maps of the tongue, showing how we sense sweet tastes with the front of the tongue, salty with the sides of the tongue just behind, sour with side patches behind those, and bitter with an area right at the back. Then there's umami, the so-called fifth taste, found in savoury flavours such as parmesan and anchovies, which is thought to be located in the centre of the tongue. This seems kind of logical but if you've ever touched a salt and vinegar crisp with the tip of your tongue and felt that salty sharp tang you'll know this can't be true. So where did this myth come from and what's the real story? It all started more than a century ago with a paper published by German scientist David Heinig in 1901. He'd been investigating whether different regions of the tongue were more or less sensitive to different tastes by dripping different flavours across the tongue and seeing how much of each was needed to provoke a response. Perhaps unsurprisingly, given that taste buds are concentrated at the tip and sides of the tongue, he found that the tip and sides were more sensitive to all flavours all the way round, showing his findings in the form of a rather confusing graph. Four decades later, US psychologist Edwin Boring took a bit of artistic license with Hennig's data for a textbook that he was writing about sensory perception, portraying it as a map of the tongue with regions of different taste sensitivities, sweet at the tip, salty and sour at the sides, and bitter at the back. This map quickly became accepted as scientific fact, and it still persists in classrooms and textbooks around the world today. The truth is so easy to reveal that it actually makes quite a nice school science experiment. Simply blindfold a willing participant, then gently swab different areas of their tongue with cotton buds soaked in various solutions. Sugar water, salt water, vinegar and tonic water, which contains bitter quinine. Being careful not to make them gag, of course. Scientists now know that taste buds... All over the tongue can detect all five of the main flavours, not to mention some other sensations too, such as the fiery burn of a chilli pepper. But according to a paper published in the journal Science in 2011, there is one part of the body where different tastes are recognised by different areas, and that's the brain. By dripping various liquids on the tongues of anaesthetised mice, the researchers discovered that distinct bits of the brain light up with fluorescent dyes that reveal nerve cell activity in response to sweet, salty, bitter and umami tastes, but intriguingly not when they tested sour liquids. Their findings are a bit controversial as they do conflict with some other results from other types of tests. But they do suggest that the taste maps we should be drawing are in the brain rather than on the tongue.
4: Well, I'm not sure what to believe anymore. Thank you, Kat. She'll have another myth to bust for us next week.
3: Until people can tell you that this gene, this gene, this
5: gene might give you an IQ of this, then we might think about, well, do we want to do that? In this month's Naked Genetics podcast, we find out if new genome engineering tools could mean we're on the road to designer babies. Plus, we unpack the latest cancer breakthrough and our gene of the month is making a terrible racket. Listen and download now at nakedscientist.com genetics. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Kat Arney, and with Connie Orbach. Keep listening for a look inside conservation's biggest battles. But before that, there
4: has been a fierce debate raging for the past month in America as the FBI were in a high-stakes legal battle with company Apple as they needed them to break into a phone. The court case was dropped once the FBI found another way to hack the phone. But now Apple have hit back and are saying they will be able to find and fix this gap in security. To talk us through this debate and what this means for the average phone user, we're joined by Naked Scientist tech wizard Peter Cowley. First up, why did the FBI want to get into this phone so badly, Peter?
2: Yes, it's been in the news quite a bit. It was uh, because there was a uh, very nasty terrorist incident in San Bernardino at the end of last year. Uh, there was a gunfight and, and both of the perpetrators were, were shot, but they had a number of mobile phones, two of which were, they'd crushed, but one was found. On the phone, you're probably aware how much there is on the phone nowadays, a smartphone, we, basically there may be uh, emails, there may be phone calls, there may be text messages, there will be location, there will be WhatsApp. You know, the location itself might be very relevant. So that's why we want to get in to um, continue the, uh, the investigation.
4: And the phone was protected. Um, I think it's an iPhone. How was it encrypted?
2: Yes. In fact, it was an older iPhone. It was a 5C, which came out about three or four years ago. And that only uses software encryption. The newer ones use hardware encryption as well in a really clever way, where there's actually a separate processor embedded on the main computer, which acts as the encryption module below the software, so that it's actually running some other software which is completely independent of the software that can be got up by somebody who's trying to hack into it. On top of that, it's got a specific encrypted hardware between the, the main memory and the flash memory, so that's encryption, but also, of course, you do need to get into it, and so the, you put a passcode into it, and what they have got software in there to that stops you putting the passcode in too many times. Otherwise, it will actually delete all the memory. And it takes a bit of time to do that. And in fact, what they were trying to do, the FBI, was to, to ask Apple to speed that up and remove the maximum number. But even that would have taken... In fact, it works out if you put a 13-digit passcode in, it would still take 12,500 years to try all the combinations.
4: And what was the stance of Apple when they refused to break in?
2: Well, first of all, they gave them a few clues on how to do it. They said, go round to the Wi-Fi system where they, and switch it back on again in the, in the house they were renting, and, and it should back itself to the iCloud. Unfortunately, something had happened in between, to do with the person who owned the iPhone, that meant that they couldn't get any data off that. So at that point then, Apple were asked whether they could break into it, and they said no. And they said no because basically for a number of reasons, but the most important one, that it would effectively set a legal precedent. It would allow the government or a law enforcement agency to ask them to get into any phone at that point they also said that if it got going into the wild i got loose their method of breaking in it could be used by criminals then so anybody could then get into any phone
4: the fbi found a way in despite all this how can this affect the rest of us who don't feel like we've got anything to hide
2: We have got stuff to hide, haven't we? We've got things like PIN codes, passwords, bank account details. Now, obviously, we shouldn't put that on our phones, but I'm sure plenty of people do. And if you were to put that on your phone and not lock it, you've got a device there that is lost in the street. will give access to all kinds of things. So you've got partly that. Partly the fact that if somebody wants to target you as a criminal and starts to understand what your movements are, where you've been, etc. They can plan something, like they could plan potentially when you're not at home because you've gone to work. So there is data on there which is of use to a criminal. So although we might feel and we know we are not criminals in ourselves, there is something on there that could be used by the criminal fraternity. It really, is, there's a conflict between the amount of privacy we want to keep and what the security forces and the government need to know in order to protect ourselves. So, you're really comparing, we've got a conflict between our own privacy and society's benefit. And that shouldn't be decided by one particular case. It should be decided at a very high level by discussion. And, and if you look in the States, they've come, I mean, the tech companies definitely want privacy. But there's an, the senators and, and Congress over there are not quite sure. They, they, they did a survey, actually, and there was 50% said on the side of Apple and 45% on the side of the government. So, you know, the population doesn't really know.
5: Yeah, it's a tricky question. Well, thank you very much, Peter. That's Peter Cowley. Now, from the cutting edge of technology to a look back through history... Srinivas Ramanujan was born in a small village outside Madras in India and in an unlikely turn of events, this man, despite having no formal schooling became one of the greatest mathematicians of the 20th century This weekend, a film comes out to celebrate his achievements just over a 100 years after he came to Cambridge to study under Trinity College's G.H. Hardy Naked scientist Gray Jackson has the story
8: One morning, early in 1913, Hardy found among the letters on his breakfast table a large, untidy envelope decorated with Indian stamps. When he opened it, he found sheets of paper, by no means fresh, on which, in a non-English holograph, were line after line of symbols. Hardy glanced at them without enthusiasm. He was, by this time, at the age of 36, a world-famous mathematician. And world-famous mathematicians, he'd already discovered, are unusually exposed to cranks. He put the manuscript aside and went on with his day's routine.
0: there was something about this letter that was bugging Hardy. On those scripts were theorems he'd never seen before. Could this crank actually be an unknown mathematical genius? It seemed unlikely that a young man with no formal training and from a poverty-stricken area of India could have solved some of the fundamental problems of mathematics. But nonetheless, he sent a message to his colleague Littlewood to meet him after dinner to go over the letter.
8: Before midnight, they knew, and knew for certain, the writer of these manuscripts was a man of genius.
6: We are looking at a letter from G. H. Hardy, the mathematician, to Schofield, who was librarian of the University Library, Cambridge.
0: That's Adam Perkins. He's in charge of all the scientific manuscripts at the Cambridge University Library, and he was kind enough to show me some of Ramanujan's letters.
6: And Hardy gives a an account of the letters that he's been able to salvage from uh, his collection of other papers, all from Ramanujan.
0: And what I thought was really lovely here is that he said, sadly, he's lost that first letter, but actually he's not surprised because everyone was very interested in his case and so he often handed it around to fellow mathematicians.
6: Uh, it is the case. Uh, he circulating his letters saying that this is quite extraordinary. This man I've never heard of before who works in India has sent me this long letter.
0: They are 15 pages or so long and a lot of it... These mathematical equations look very impressive but are completely (laughs) illegible to someone like me.
6: Well, indeed, I deal with a lot of manuscripts and I can assure you these are very clear indeed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All apart from the mathematical equations. (laughs) Well, the
6: the actual content is another matter but at least of the content you know exactly what Romano-Jones is writing. But uh, the mathematical analysis is something quite different, yes.
9: So after a number of letters, Hardy invited Ramanujan to Trinity and he would have arrived here in front of Great Gate, where we're standing at the moment. Um, He would have looked up to see the statue of Henry VIII. He'd have gone through the gate and into Great Court and been struck by one of the most beautiful sights in Cambridge. Professor Catherine Barnard,
0: she's a Fellow of Law but also a Senior Tutor at Trinity College. Now, you might be wondering how a professor of law has ended up talking to me about maths. Well, as a senior tutor, Catherine is very involved in running the college. And so when the production company asked her if they could film at Trinity, she thought...
9: I need to know more about Ramanujan as a lawyer. He's not really crossed my path. And so I bought the Robert Canigal book and really enjoyed wonderful story about this man who comes from, you know, a really very disadvantaged background, gets to Cambridge and does some of the most brilliant maths that has exceptional longevity.
0: And over a hundred years later since Ramanujan's arrival, not much has changed here at Cambridge, including the iconic Wren Library, which has the only known photograph of the Indian mathematician.
9: What we see in the picture is a rather handsome young man with a rather quizzical expression in his eyes. This was his passport photo, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, yes.
0: What's really striking to me is actually he's got this sort of Elvis-like quisp. Obviously he was before Elvis, but his eyes, he's got such big almond eyes, very white and then very dark pupils. They're quite... um... They're quite something.
9: Had the college been mixed, he'd have been quite a ladies' man, but of course it wasn't, and his, he only had eyes for one thing, and that was clearly his mass, which was what brought him over here. What was it like for him? I think he would have suffered terribly from the cold. I think the other thing that would have really struck him would have been the magnificence of the buildings. The Wren Library, where we are, with its magnificent light shining through the windows but also the busts, the bookcases, but also probably rather intimidating if you'd come from a very different background. And I was rather struck by um, a quote in Robert Canegall's book. Um, and if I may, I'll just read you one quote from it. In this old town of cobbled walks, grassy courts and medieval chapels, whole universes away from Madras, Ramanujan had found a kind of intellectual nirvana.
0: And what made Ramanujan's maths so remarkable?
9: He was a remarkable mathematician. I think his story is so extraordinary that where he came from in India with next to no training and he developed these extraordinary formula.
0: I mean, it's something in the region of 3,000 or 4,000 equations he put together, most of which have been proven right. I mean, that's just incredible to me. Presumably
9: the man never slept. <laughs> yeah, I mean, indeed, because he lived till he was 30, didn't he? Yes, it was a tragically short life. And obviously, while he got intellectual succour here, the climate and the food was not good for him. And obviously, he suffered quite a lot physically, if not mentally. And very sadly, he didn't live much longer than after he returned to India.
0: It's amazing to think what maybe he, perhaps he could have achieved had he lived a bit longer.
9: Absolutely, although it's often said that mathematicians are at their most brilliant in their late 20s, early 30s. So perhaps we did see the prime, but
5: who knows? Professor Catherine Barnard and Adam Perkins, both from the University of Cambridge.
4: You're listening to The Naked Scientist. I'm Connie Orbach. She's Kat Arney. Now it's time for the main theme of the show, and this week, that
5: is the hidden conflicts of conservation. Earlier in the week, the world's first conservation campus was officially opened in Cambridge by Sir David Attenborough, who had this to say about it.
8: The natural world is imperiled as never before. During my lifetime, many habitats have been destroyed or degraded, and many species have declined in number. This loss not only diminishes the beauty and diversity of the natural world, it also puts our own future in jeopardy. We depend on nature for the very air we breathe, for every mouthful of food we consume, for every drop of clean water that we drink.
4: A powerful message, but how feasible is it to prevent species from going extinct? With 7 billion humans
5: alive today and our needs and numbers rising, is it really possible to share the planet? There's a whole host of factors at play in the fight to save the world's endangered species, but we're going to be zooming in on where human and animal interests collide, looking at the extreme ways people have tried to prevent poaching, if living next door to lions is really possible, and whether we should be protecting our wildlife behind fences. But first,
4: let's take stock of what's really at stake here. I'm joined by Dr. Baska Vera, the Director of the University of Cambridge Conservation Research Institute. Thanks for joining us, Bhaskar. Firstly, how big is the problem we're facing here?
10: So the numbers are a little difficult to estimate because we still don't know how much biodiversity there is out there. Uh, Every year, scientists are discovering new species, so it's difficult to know how much we're losing when we don't know how much we've got. But recent research suggests that we're losing species much faster than before humans arrived on the planet, maybe something like a thousand times faster. So um, the influence of humans on extinctions is distinct and it's really important. If the numbers are correct, we might be losing as much as 10,000 species per year. That's the upper estimate.
4: Wow, 10,000. But why should I care about some frog in the Amazon that I've never heard of if it's gone extinct? Well,
10: there are probably two ways and two reasons why you should care. One is because that frog might have some important cures that might actually improve the quality of human life. A number of diseases have been addressed by previously unknown species that were discovered in places like the rainforest. But the other reason, of course, is the aesthetic beauty and the importance of nature for its own sake. So it's not only about why the frog matters for humanity, but because the frog is important as a member of the living planet.
4: So a kind of basic value system there then. Mm -hmm. What are the different factors driving species into extinction?
10: I suppose the biggest factor is that we're using more resources than the planet generates. The WWF has estimated that we are living on one and a half planets, which means essentially to sustain our human consumption today, we would need one and a half planets. We don't have one and a half planets, so we're running out of what the planet actually has to offer. So those pressures manifest themselves in terms of habitat change, land use uh, pressures, as well as impacts upon the aquatic environment. And that's what nature requires in order to survive. So our human impacts are really making that big difference.
4: Now, with a growing population, that's only going to get worse. And when humans and animals share the same space, what kind of conflicts can occur there?
10: I mean, there's a number of conflicts which are essentially to do with the difficulties of cohabiting in these spaces. As towns grow, there's more demand for housing. Green spaces start to shrink. As land and resources become scarcer, uh, industrial agriculture expanding for food production means that there's less forest in some parts of the world. And those conflicts are becoming really important. You asked about humans and animals. Increasingly, uh, living next to wild animals is no longer seen as something which is a pleasure, but it's actually their pests right on your doorstep. Wild elephants trampling on crops in India and Africa, wild predators lifting sheep from shepherds and lifting cattle from cattle grazers. These have become real conflicts that are manifesting themselves today. And it's to do with shrinking space and insufficient space for all these uses.
4: Yeah, I can see if an elephant's destroying your crops, you might not value in it exactly the same way we do when you just see it on the TV. So what kind of ways are there of mitigating these conflicts?
10: So there are two types of things that people are talking about. One is to take a good hard look at how we can reduce our own excessive consumption. What can we do to reduce that footprint that humanity has on the planet? How can we reduce our impacts on nature? How can we help people make these choices? through information, through imparting more knowledge, and increasingly through using regulation and the pricing system to try and help people make those decisions. When people introduced a 5P charge on carrier bags, people stopped using quite as many carrier bags because it suddenly started to matter. So there are simple things that we might be able to do. The other, of course, is to try try and do more with less, using technology and innovation to produce more from the finite amount of resources that we have. So those are the two ways in which we should really be thinking about this, both of which would combine to reduce that competition between humans and animals. Mm -hmm.
4: And very briefly, you were at the opening of the David Attenborough Conservation Campus earlier in the week. What makes this building so special?
10: So it's a really unique new conservation campus at the heart of Cambridge. It brings together the university with nine leading conservation organizations that are based in Cambridge under the Cambridge Conservation Initiative. And the opportunity to be co-located, to work together together it's something that's really unprecedented. These organisations and the university haven't a long history of working with each other. We've been working together in this context for well over a decade. It's unusual in the world because these are often organisations that compete with each other. And of course, what makes it extra special is that Sir David Attenborough has lent his name to this building. So what could be more inspiring?
4: Thank you so much. That's Dr. Bascavera.
5: Admirable indeed. When it comes to conserving animals, especially the larger ones like lions and elephants, we heard that if you're living with them, they can seem less valuable to you, maybe just pests. But it's the price put on their heads by others that can lead to poaching, which inevitably puts conservationists in direct conflict with people and poachers later we'll hear about some of the approaches we can take in fighting poaching but first we're going to look back at a story about the world's most famous primatologist and her battle to save the mountain gorillas
1: here in the room where we have our tea every day is a massive bookshelf full of people's PhDs from the past and Right up there at the top, I'm going to have to get up on a chair, is Diane Fossey's PhD, called The Behaviour of the Mountain Gorilla.
4: That is the voice of fellow naked scientist Georgia, who has been investigating Diane's story.
1: Looking through, it's full of photos and graphs that have been stuck in by hand. So this is quite, quite a fantastic artefact, really, to have where you have your teach tea day. And this is from when Diane Fossey was in Cambridge doing her PhD on a very brief stint when she wasn't in Africa studying these gorillas. Wow, it's beautiful.
4: Yeah, you can see that all of the pages have been individually typed.
1: Diane Fossey is a really interesting character. She just decided at the age of about 30 that she just really wanted to go to Africa. She took out a massive bank loan and just up and left, really. And when she was there, she met a world-famous anthropologist, Lewis Leakey told him about her passion for gorillas and about three years later he funded her to go out and study these mountain gorillas where they live. Wow, dream job. Absolutely, and I think from reading her biography, Gorillas in the Mist, it sounds absolutely magical. She wrote this about the first time she ever saw them.
11: I shall never forget my first encounter with gorillas. Sound preceded sight, odour preceded sound. In the form of an overwhelming, musky barnyard, human like scent. The air was suddenly rent by a high pitched series of screams, followed by the rhythmic rondo of sharp, hock hock chest beats from a great silver backed male obscured behind what seemed an impenetrable wall of vegetation.
4: Wow, she's got quite a knack for description there. So she was a
1: researcher, but we're talking about conservation. How did she move from one to the other? She spent so much time researching these gorillas that she grew quite close with them. She grew to absolutely love them and respect them. These gorillas were critically endangered. There are about 400 of them left, and Diane continuously saw signs of them being poached.
4: Poaching, that's something I associate with rhino horns, elephant tusks.
1: Not really with gorillas. What were they doing with them? Sometimes their hands and their feet would be sold to collectors and also the infants would be captured to be sold as pets. And when this happened, the adult gorillas, they would fight to the death to basically prevent that. So this could be devastating to a gorilla community. And Diane saw this happening and obviously was very distressed by it and wanted to stamp this out to save what was a species on its last legs, really. And so she started to organise anti-poaching patrols, destroying any traps and snares that she found, and she'd escort any poachers off the land. And this is something she termed active conservation, but it kind of turned into almost a war with the poachers. And this was all operating outside of the support of the local community and the government who also wanted to end the poaching. So it sounds like quite radical. Did it work? No, or at least it did not stop the poaching altogether. And it made Diane a lot of enemies things did not get any better and eventually a gorilla who is actually features in her PhD there's a photo of him here okay so this is this is one of uh, the gorillas that she was working with his name was Digit and he was one of her favorites and she found him basically dead with his hands and his head removed And at this point, things got really personal and escalated and there are reports of her using stinging nettles to torture the poachers, kidnapping their children and even pretending to use witchcraft to try and scare people off.
4: God, that's very dark, isn't it?
1: It is a dark story and it doesn't end well as well. This all came to a head and Diane Fossey was found murdered in her cabin one morning. No one really knows who did it. It could have been a poacher. There are loads of different theories and we might never know for sure, but what is known is that she had made a lot of enemies. That's quite a harrowing story. And, and this is apparently conservation, you're telling me. Does, does it work? Some have argued that if Diane hadn't done what she'd done, then we wouldn't have any gorillas left to study today. But this style is generally seen as really self-defeating. You can't stop everyone with brute force. And the idea of alienating the locals and operating this kind of war on poaching goes against what is now the general consensus of conservation. So she's obviously, uh, she's got
4: quite a story, she's quite well known, but was was the conservation, was that all for nothing?
1: There is a light at the end of the tunnel. What Diane Fossey undoubtedly did do was raise the profile and the understanding of these mountain gorillas that she loves so much, which meant that people all around the world were much more likely to donate funds to support their conservation. And although mountain gorillas are still critically endangered, they're one of the few species whose numbers are actually on the rise.
4: That was Georgia Mills with the story of Diane Fossey.
5: Although people like Diane have done so much to raise awareness of poaching and conservation issues, sadly, the problem of poaching hasn't gone away. So what is the best way to fight it now and in the future? We're joined down the line by Simon Hedges, who works for the Wildlife Conservation Society. So how much of a problem is poaching generally for wildlife species?
12: It is a very significant problem for... A whole suite of species across most of the planet. Unfortunately, obviously we hear about elephants and, and rhinos, particularly, and scary statistics like a hundred thousand elephants killed in three years uh, across Africa, 2010 to 2012, thousands of um, rhinos being killed. We're losing populations and we're losing range of a lot of species and, of course, a lot of species are actually threatened by poachers to the extent that they actually go extinct in some places.
5: In the case of the mountain gorillas, they were being poached for their hands, their feet, their babies were being taken. Uh, In the case of the other species, we obviously we get rhinos being poached for their horns, elephants being poached for their ivory. Is it this kind of medicinal and and valuable use that, that makes people want to poach these animals?
12: Well, very much in the case of those species. With you know, the price of, of rhino horn more than cocaine or, or even diamonds, um, people can make a tremendous amount of money in it with very limited investment of time. Obviously, there's a risk, you know, tremendous risk. They might lose their lives. But given how poor some people are across much of the range of these species, there's the temptation. But more significantly, I think, and it's not just poor people, I think it's a very important point to get across, what we're increasingly seeing is organised criminal syndicates involved in the poaching and the trafficking of of ivory and of rhino horn and it's the involvement of these groups particularly which has has led to the crisis we're seeing um, for elephants
5: and for rhinos right now in the last um, decade or so. This is big stuff if there's organised groups doing it. How do we fight it? What are some of the ways that people are trying?
12: There are a number of tools in in the arsenal, if if you will. Probably the two key things are to secure the the key populations of of elephants, rhinos, and all the other species that are affected by poaching in the in the sites they live in through much more sophisticated and much more people-friendly um, poaching operations than those you were talking about with uh, the Diane Fossey story. Obviously, one needs people, local people on the side. And it's important to recognise that local people are often threatened by these armed poaching gangs as well. Their local security, their livelihoods are undermined. So it's possible to have a win-win situation where anti-poaching operations that are done in a sensitive way and are not criminalising the local people can actually benefit those local people as well as protecting the populations of wildlife we're interested in.
5: As well as getting the local population involved, are there any more high-tech ways that uh, people can try and stop poachers or do we do we just need better fencing
12: uh, i don't think it's really a question of fencing i mean fencing it doesn't have a particularly useful role in anti-poaching i don't think i mean because poachers can easily cut the fences and indeed in many places poachers use fencing wire to make snares poaching can be combated through better equipped better managed better paid better motivated rangers whose sacrifices is recognized by the global community. There are possibilities of using things like drones and other high-tech tools, but essentially it does come down to motivated people properly trained to do the job.
5: So those are on the ground kind of approaches, but what about just stopping the demand for these products?
12: Yes, absolutely. I mean, the two ends of the trade chain, if you like, the, the poaching end and the demand end are the key ends of the trade. Obviously, poachers are trafficking ivory in between, but there's many, many routes um, that contraband can be smuggled. It's rather like water. It takes the path of least resistance. So the key thing to do is to reduce the demand and reduce the consumption of ivory and rhino horn and these other products in the main markets, which for ivory and, and rhino horn are China and Vietnam and other countries in the Far East to a large degree.
5: How can that be done? I mean, if you just say this is all completely illegal, you shouldn't do it anymore. I guess is, is that the only way that we can do it through basically making this stuff illegal?
12: that. I mean, and, and currently, actually, it is it is legal to trade ivory in many countries around the world in, in the domestic sense, in you know, local markets. It's, it's, it's perfectly legal to go into London and buy ivory, as it is in Beijing or many other countries. So domestic bans to complement the international ban is, is definitely part of the jigsaw puzzle, you know, part of the suite of tools we need. But if you just ban something, you potentially just push the demand under, underground, like with prohibition with alcohol. So what, what that also needs to do is to actually educate people and you know, affect behavioural change so that the desire to have those products um, is reduced. And this has happened before. I mean, a number of countries which used to be major players in, in rhino horn and ivory poaching uh, and consumption um, are no longer implicated. So we know that demand reduction, consumption can be reduced through a combination of education, awareness raising and, and legal approaches.
5: We have heard recently that South Africa is considering re-legalising rhino horn. I mean, that would seem to fly in the face, wouldn't it, sort of very briefly?
12: Yes, international trade remains banned. South Africa can request, um, but I think an opening of international trade in Rhino-Horn, I think it's tremendously unlikely to be successful in that request at the the CITES meeting, the the wildlife trade meeting in the autumn of this year. I think most people think they will be unsuccessful in that request.
5: Let's hope that something gets done to keep protecting these species. Thank you very much. That's Simon Hedges from the Wildlife Conservation Society. So if we can't
4: keep wildlife behind a fence and the population keeps expanding, it looks like we'll have to, in places, live together with animals. And while there's no silver bullet, we are working on it. But it's not all doom and gloom. India, one of the most densely populated countries in the world, has hundreds of Asiatic lions living very closely with people in an area called the Gir Forest. And apparently this causes no conflict. To find out why, Georgia Mills hopped over to London Zoo who are working closely with the people of the Gear to conserve the species and who have opened up a new enclosure called the Land of the Lions.
1: Lovely to meet you.
13: I'm Gitanjali Patacharya and I'm the programme manager for South and Central Asia. This is the high street from Sasangir, which we've recreated. So you've got a little snapshot of what life would be like to live really close to the edge of Gere Forest in very close proximity to lions, It is a bit like stepping abroad for a second. There's
1: there's sort of a market stall with loads of sandals, there's a mural with a painting of a lion, and then right next to us... Well, behind glass is where the lions live,
13: all very unlike what I'm used to at the zoo. It's a very immersive exhibit and we've taken elements right from the conservation project and had teams come out and visit us in the gear and taken snippets of it. So right here where we are standing is essentially the station platform. And for those of us who've been out there, essentially it's like going back in, being on the station platform in Sasan.
1: Having lions roaming around the train station is not something I've ever really thought about on my commute to work. But having an enormous predator for a next-door neighbour is a reality for people in many parts of the world. Lions are living closer to farmland than ever before, which leaves farmers at risk of having their livestock killed. And then the lions at risk of being shot in retaliation. But apparently this
13: conflict does not occur in the gear. So what's going on in this patch of India that's so different? For me, the Asiatic lion story is one of the greatest success stories for carnivore conservation anywhere in the world. We often hear about lions coming into conflict with humans in Africa and also big carnivores coming into conflict, even tigers coming into conflict with humans in India. Whereas for these lions, you have a local community in and around these areas that revere and worship the lions in their midst. You've got a very committed government that's doing everything it can to protect these lions.
1: You mentioned respect. They have respect for these lions, but respect alone isn't enough to stop a lion from eating you or stealing <laughs> your crop. So what else is going on here
13: to keep this working? You have local communities that can tell lion behavior very closely just from observing them, just a flick of a tail, just the way that a lioness may look up. The local community knows when the lion or lioness last hunted. So they're very, very attuned to the ecology of the species. And what they do is that they put their most productive livestock into the center of this herd and they put the unproductive cattle on the outside, essentially surrounding this. And that basically avoids conflict because they know that they could, they accept the fact that they're going to lose some heads of livestock, but it is their most unproductive livestock and therefore you avoid the situation of conflict.
1: Talking with Katangeli, there were two words that kept coming up, special and unique. And the relationship the locals have with the lions, it's a spiritual and a religious one. It is special. It's not seen elsewhere in the world, really. But it has a key part to play in the lack of conflict. So can this really be seen as a conservation success story if it can't be replicated elsewhere? Well, the lines in the gear may be an exception to the norm, but Kitanjali feels that the key lessons, like working with local communities and
13: education, can be applied elsewhere. There's also daily lessons that we're learning in terms of rescue and rehabilitation of um, large cats. Leopards are a big issue around this area. Um, So the lessons that we learn from uh, the rescue and rehabilitation and movement of these large carnivores, lions and leopards included, are lessons that we're taking to the conservation projects that we do in other parts of the world, particularly in South Asia, which have a very similar cultural context. Whether these lions are a conservation anomaly
1: or not, I still really wanted to see one, so we went on the hunt. I can spot a lion. We've come through, we've come through the high street under the sort of temple-looking bit, and we've just approached a beautiful golden-brown
13: lioness prowling the territory. Who's this? So this is Heidi here, who's one of our oldest lionesses, and there's two twins, Indy and Ruby, who you can hear. Them. Is that them roaring? Yes. That's fantastic. I don't think I've heard a lion roar before, so I'm very happy. Well, you can hear lions roaring from about five kilometres away, so it's, it's quite a powerful sound, and I think you can sort of hear it echoing in your chest. So, a very, very special sound indeed. You can not help but to be amazed by the fact that you're just standing so close to a large predator.
1: Predator, indeed, seeing these giant animals up close really hammered it home. You do not want to mess with these guys. But while I was safe behind glass, that is never the case for the people who live in the gear forest.
13: So this is one of the uh, Maldhari huts and these are people that live within the forest. And I just find it astonishing how close some of these children get um, to Asiatic lions. I know if my six-year-old got anywhere that close to lions, I would be terrified.
1: And there you have it. These lions can kill people. So what if the worst happens? How do you reconcile the need to save these animals from extinction against a human life? Again, these lions seem to be something of an anomaly.
13: It's a really interesting story in the gear. And actually, you have to be there to be able to imbibe the culture of the people, as well as to be able to understand the deep and enormous amount of respect that they have for these large predators. I have been in Gujarat when there has been incidents of a uh, 25 year old being killed And uh, the chief wildlife warden got called out and he went instantly. There was a huge media frenzy around somebody so young being killed by a lioness. And it was actually extraordinary, given the fact that somebody so young had died, that the people within the community were averse to this lioness being removed from their field, from within them, because the lioness had had cubs and the local community felt very much a sense that it belonged to their community and essentially protested against these lioness being moved just because somebody had come too close to it and didn't respect the boundaries that they believe in.
4: Gitanjala Patajara at ZSL London Zoo, showing Georgia Mills their fantastic Asiatic lions. It's nice to hear a success story in conservation, although I'm still not sure I'd be happy to conserve lions if one of them tried to eat me. Thanks to
5: all of our other guests this week, Simon Hedges, Vera, and Peter Cowley. Now it's time for our Question of the Week. And, Connie, you've been looking into Leberhang's question. The
6: Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education, from alpha to omega. Why do we get hiccups when we eat spicy food?
4: I hate hiccups. I'm always worried they're never going to stop. But I have to admit, I don't even know what they are.
11: Dr Clemency Booth, please explain. Hiccups are produced by repeated involuntary contractions of a hemidiaphragm. That's one half of your diaphragm and your intercostal muscles. That's the muscles between your ribs. This muscle contraction results in a sudden inspiration and forces the glottis shut, thereby generating the characteristic ick sound. Hiccups are a voluntary reflex, which don't involve the brain which means that we don't have to think about what we are doing. They just happen. Any process that interferes with the neural pathways involved in hiccups can trigger them.
4: Okay, so reflex reaction of our ribs and diaphragm
11: pushes air
4: up, forcing the closing of the glottis, or the space between our vocal cords. Now that's all well and good, but what about spicy food? And is this even a phenomenon? On Facebook, Christina Allegria said, no hiccups here whilst a straw poll in the Naked Scientist's office suggested a two-to-one ratio. No hiccups to hiccups.
11: The most common cause of hiccups is distension of the stomach by a large meal. This is thought to put external pressure on the diaphragm, irritating it and causing it to contract. So it may be that those of us that tend to eat quickly, such as when we've ordered a delicious spicy takeaway, may be more likely to develop hiccups. It is also well known that spicy food can cause heartburn or acid reflux, and this has also been linked to hiccups. There are two hypotheses of why this may happen. The first is that spicy food causes us to belch, and this again causes distension of the stomach and irritation of the diaphragm. The other feasible cause could be that spicy food increases acid production in the stomach, irritating the nerves that are involved in the hiccup reflex. So maybe it's speedy gobbling
4: or a propensity to heartburn. But once we have them, please tell us there's a cure.
11: Although there is no sure cure for hiccups, there are many things that are said to help. These include holding your breath, scaring someone, or even biting lemons. My mum always told me that drinking out of the opposite side of the cup would help, but I'm not sure if this ever worked. I would advise a combination of all techniques to find out what works for you. Sometimes
4: our mother's advice is the best or only solution we have. Thanks, Dr Booth.
5: Next time, we'll be answering Paul's question.
10: How fast would a lift need to be going to kill the people inside it?
5: Oh, well, I hope that's just out of curiosity. If you've got any ideas, do get in touch. Our email is chris at Find us on Twitter at Naked Scientist. Find us on Facebook or on our forum, nakedscientist.com slash forum.
4: That brings us to the end of the programme. Thank you, Georgia Mills, for production. Do join us next week when we'll be tackling your science questions. If you have any, then send them in to chris at The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Connie Orbach and thank you for listening.